Are there libertarians in a pandemic? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Matt Bufton. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Matt Bufton. Matt co-founded the Institute for Liberal Studies in 2006 and has been serving as the executive director since 2010. After graduating from the University of Windsor's Odette School of Business, he worked in marketing and project management in the insurance and software industries before returning to school to study political science at the University of Windsor and public policy at the University of Michigan. When he's not worried about COVID-19 and our freedoms or mixing cocktails, he's arranging and overseeing ILS speaking events, academic seminars and lectures, and serving as this podcast's executive producer. Matt, welcome back to The Curious Task. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for staying at least, I think we're six feet away now. We are. For uh, for anyone who's listening and wants to uh, ensure that we are practicing social distancing, uh, myself, Alex, and Sabine are here in our office. We are all six feet apart. And speaking for myself, you guys are the first people I've interacted with in person uh, in the last six days. So it's actually really nice to see you. Well, it's nice to see you too. And uh, and like as Matt said, we are keeping our distance here. And, and that's that's pretty, pretty good. Executive producer's orders, right? Exactly right. Lots of hand sanitizer. Thanks to Sabine. Yeah. And Sabine's wearing gloves. So this is serious business, guys. We're in person, but, but quite far away from each other. So Matt, in each episode, we start things off with a question, as you know, and go wherever the discussion leads us. Today, our question is, are there libertarians in a pandemic? This has been inspired by a turn of phrase a few seem to be using now. Uh, Specifically, there was an Atlantic article that said, just as there are no atheists in foxholes in a national emergency, there's no truly laissez-faire government. Uh, That was the quote, but the title of the article was, there are no libertarians in an epidemic. So maybe first, why don't you tell us what you think is meant by the term libertarian in the Atlantic article and briefly what you're, me- what you're meaning by the word. And uh, of course, this episode isn't what is libertarianism, but I think getting that distinction would be clear. So I, th- I think in the Atlantic article, there's a pretty large misconception uh, because the that article deals largely with the uh, reactions of the Trump administration uh, to the, the crisis. And the author seems to be under the impression that perhaps the uh, Trump administration was this embodiment of libertarianism. Libertarianism, and I think most libertarians would say that's definitely not true. Um, so uh, when I use the word, we use it uh, sort of synonymously with classical liberalism. Uh, sometimes try and tease out those differences, but that can be uh, can be difficult. So what we're really looking at is an idea of uh, only wanting to do through government the things that can only be done through government, not needing to limit people's individual freedoms to do the things that are important to them, unless we have a good reason to, uh, and uh, and really trying to you know keep an eye on uh, on government, on constraints, on freedom. As you're saying, there seems to be misconceptions around what the libertarian position might look like uh, during a crisis like this with the COVID-19 epidemic. Um, obviously, some do think that uh, since libertarians often say that government shouldn't be involved in X, Y, and Z, that they might then channel the, uh, turn the cannons to that during a crisis and say, well, the government shouldn't do anything, which I think I, think, and you're going to tell us what you think, is actually a silly idea 
uh, for someone to put on libertarians in, in this situation. Uh, you know, some people I've seen on social media are saying things like, thank God for taxes. I put that in quotes because I saw someone say that because they say it, it allowed the government to take quick action to help people who lost their jobs, for example. Uh, and if we lived in sort of a laissez-faire libertarian ideal society, the government wouldn't be doing anything, I guess. So thank God for these taxes and the government in this case, checkmate libertarians. That seems to be an attitude by some. So how can a libertarian, generally speaking, who is usually a critic of many government programs, approach these general discussions in this time of crisis? We'll, we'll discuss more specific COVID-19 stuff in a sec, but, but generally speaking, in crisis time, how should a libertarian approach these sorts of responses or people saying things like this? Well, so I think probably the most important thing there is to say that most libertarians are not anarchists. And the right. reason that you know those are two different terms is because anarchists believe in no government and libertarians tend to believe in limited government. So for, for most libertarians, it's not that government should never do anything and we should never have any government. It's that we should have a limited role for government. Uh, one of the things that many libertarians would say is a role for government is to provide public goods. Uh, public goods can be a confusing term. Many people might hear that and just think that means things that are good for the public. Right. Uh, but uh, but I'm going to use that term more in the economic sense, which would mean uh, goods that are non-rivalrous and uh, and non-excludable. Uh, so on the non-rivalrous uh, part, that means that a group of us can equally consume a good, can use a good, uh, and it doesn't mean there's any less left. Uh, so if we look at a pizza, uh, pizza is rivalrous. If I take a slice of pizza, there's a bit less pizza for the rest of uh, rest of the group. Uh, so something that would be non-rival might be like a fireworks show. If I'm watching fireworks, there's no less fireworks for anyone else to uh, to enjoy. Uh, and then uh, non-rival and non-excludable is the second uh, requirement for a public good. And so that means it's hard to keep people uh, from enjoying if it's going to exist. A fireworks show is another good example of something that's it's difficult to exclude. In theory, perhaps you could build a wall tall enough that no one who didn't pay admission to the fireworks show right. could could not see it. But th but that's impractical. So. So things that would be excludable uh, would be something like a meal in a restaurant, right? It's very easy to keep people who didn't pay for a meal in a restaurant from going in and enjoying that meal. Um, so uh, according to economic theory, things that are public goods that are non-rival, non-excludable will tend to be underprovided. The market is not going to provide them. And uh, and that's why you don't see a lot of like private companies doing fireworks shows uh, because they're difficult to sort of use as a revenue source. Unless they can bundle it with advertising or an event that is, you know, you can exclude people from, charge admission, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say the great many fireworks shows are done as a, as a public event, yes, uh, and then they're put on very often by the government, uh, which is sort of what uh, what economic theory might tell us. Uh, you do, of course, get some examples of, of uh, purely private uh, fireworks shows, um, but uh, but probably most of the fireworks people have seen uh, were put on uh, either a small backyard displays or the big shows would be done uh, probably as a public thing. They might be sponsored by a company, but they're not doing it as a profit-seeking enterprise. Right. Um, so because we don't have enough of these public goods, the theory uh, would go, uh, we're not, or we're not going to have them because of these problems. It's a proper thing for government to provide these things. So I use the fireworks example. Another example of a, a public good would be national defense. 
right? Um, so we have some national defense in Canada, and we could debate to what degree, if any, mm-hmm. we're actually under threat from uh, from foreign enemies here. Right. But uh, but many people in countries do worry about about foreign threats, and when their countries set up national defense, you really have to defend everyone in the country. It's hard to say, okay, we're defending everybody in Canada, but Alex didn't pay his taxes, so Alex doesn't get the defense, right? When we have the planes, we have the military, we have all these things, uh, you're going to be protected by them anyway. But also, the fact that I'm sitting in a country with national defense and perhaps enjoying the benefits of that national defense in no way diminishes your ability to benefit from or perhaps even enjoy that uh, that national defense. Um, and so one of uh, the examples, uh, potentially, of a public good would be preparedness for a, in case of an, a pandemic. Right. Uh, when we have a, a country that is prepared for these things, that is going to deal with it, uh, this is probably a non-rival, non-excludable good and could well be a public good in the true economic sense, not only in the sense that it would be good for the public. So getting a little more specific then, it seems that what the Atlantic article didn't do, or the person writing the Atlantic article, I should say, didn't do was talk to an actual libertarian. So I'm talking to one right now. Uh, so we just spoke about what the role of government is in in general, perhaps during a time of crisis. So during the time of a pandemic, from your perspective, obviously, Matt, you can't claim to speak for all libertarians, but it's still going to be very informative to discuss it. We have a situation right now. It's a crisis. It's a pandemic. What kind of things, and, and again, we'll get more specific later, but generally speaking, what kind of things can we expect that a libertarian would be okay with the government doing during such a time? I think it's reasonable to to look to the government to provide some sort of uh, you know national coordination, or, or, or it could be a city or a provincial, a regional, but some sort of the coordination of the of the efforts uh, in terms of communicating information about that. And, and certainly in Canada and in most countries, there's going to be a pretty strong role of the government government in healthcare government is involved and now we could say whether or not we want the level of government involvement in healthcare right, that right. we want. But given the situation in which we are, uh, it's going to be responsible for those sorts of things too. So let's let's get down a little more specific. You and I were talking a little bit before we actually recorded and you were saying there's, you know, you're tossing around a few ideas of the types of things we could discuss during this discussion. So we're talking about goods and services funded by the public purse. Um, actually kick us off with a quote here as well. Uh, this was a Reason article, Can You Be a Libertarian in a Pandemic? And it said, it's neither a knock against libertarianism nor a sacrifice of libertarian principles to accept the fact that sometimes government action is needed and a pandemic is one of those times. Uh, so we see, for instance, the government rolling out, uh, you know, what they probably will call like temporary government action, right? There's uh, stimulus packages happening right now. There's uh, expansions to employment benefits, uh, stuff like that. Uh, Some people are relating this back to things like, uh, you know, the the Great Depression and stuff. But ultimately, um, you know, uh, there is an importance of a healthy dose of skepticism that a libertarian needs to apply to government action happening during these times. But again, there's probably some sort of role for a government when it comes to this relief or not. What What do you think? Yeah, so I, I think there's certainly a, a role, going to be a role for government. Most people are going to think that. Most libertarians, I think, will, will think that. And so I don't think the correct lens to be viewing this situation through is uh, is sort of some sort of libertarian purity test. Uh, rather, I I think it's wanting to keep in mind the values that libertarians would uh, would bring to the table and uh, and looking at responses, looking for responses that keep in mind things like individual liberty, uh, human flourishing, uh, the uh, the, you know, the rights of the individual, um, but also uh, taking advantage of you know the decentralized nature of an effort to combat something like this. So one thing that uh, that has been interesting is in some sense uh, people are claiming 
that uh, some people have claimed that there are no libertarians in a, in a pandemic, and uh, and certainly people are concerned about a collective welfare in a way that some would see at odds with libertarianism. I'm not quite sure that's uh, fair or accurate, but it is what it is. Um, but on the other hand, there are a lot of things that libertarians might express concerns about that people are becoming much more open to. Um, so one example is uh, you know, libertarians generally would have a fair degree of skepticism towards many of the regulations that governments would place on people and on companies in terms of what they could do without certain permits, uh, without certain permissions from, uh, from government. So normally something as simple as producing hand sanitizer uh, would be something that only certain people could uh, could do or certain companies could, uh, can do. Uh, I remember reading about a week ago that uh, the FDA in the United States had uh, permitted um, pharmacists to begin uh, preparing mm -hmm. and mixing hand sanitizer. That was apparently something that they were not allowed to do beforehand. Uh, even absent of this crisis, I would have looked around and said, well, what reason is there to stop a pharmacist who wants to prepare hand sanitizer right. from doing so? It turns out there's a lot of regulations we didn't know existed before this time, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then also on the, the hand sanitizer, distilleries. Right. We're increasingly reading about distilleries who have these stores of alcohol and are realizing that they can use this to make hand sanitizer. And yet that also was illegal uh, for some reason. I'm not quite sure what the sort of perceived good is, the, the evil that's going to come about if distilleries also decide they want to produce hand sanitizer. Right. Um, but uh, most people now are seeing like, hey, we actually, we don't care that much about that regulation. We care about being able to get hand sanitizer when it's important for public health. Mm -hmm. so, so maybe there's, uh, you know, flipping away from discussing how libertarians might need to defend themselves from unjustifiable accusations of not caring about any government action. On the other hand, there's opportunities for libertarians in pandemic to actually maybe stick to some of their principles on certain things even uh, more strongly and say, hey, like, here's a great example of why perhaps the libertarian position is correct, like you're saying on regulation. Like like I was saying before, there's a lot of things that I've even been reading about that I, I didn't know that regulation existed. So again, maybe there's a place where lifting some of those regulations can do more good. Yeah, yeah. No, I think there's a lot of regulations in place, and uh, and if you look at any set of regulations, you're probably going to find at least some of them that you think are beneficial and appropriate. Right. But there's a lot that uh, that are not, and libertarians tend to be especially aware of these things and uh, and often critical of them. And now we're seeing the uh, sort of the ones that turns out perhaps were not that necessary. Uh, and again, in the U.S., the TSA has uh, waived the recently waived the limit on the size of bottles allowing you to bring a larger bottle of hand sanitizer on mm. a plane. Uh, a lot of libertarians are critical of things like the TSA saying that, well, you know, it's not really, really making us much safer. They've got these rules. They're somewhat arbitrary and we're often right. lacking evidence that they, they really accomplish anything. Now, if it were the case that allowing people to bring uh, bottles of hand sanitizer larger than I think it's three ounces or hundred milliliters. Something like that. Is the, is the usual yeah. limit. Um, if it were the case that by allowing people to bring larger bottles on, we expected there to be lots of like acts of terrorism committed to airplanes, right. they wouldn't have waived that regulation, right? right? So by doing so, they're sort of implicitly admitting that perhaps that um, regulation wasn't wasn't doing that much good. Now, they've still kept that regulation in place for all sorts of other liquids, right. but perhaps when the immediate crisis is passed, that could provoke a conversation uh, about the TSA, about those sorts of security measures, and people might ask, okay, which of these regulations, if any, are actually making us safer, uh, reducing 
reducing the chances of acts of terrorism being committed on airplanes, and which are on there because they're sort of arbitrary and uh, and have just never been uh, never, never been removed or, or carefully examined uh, because of the tendency of government regulations to be introduced and then to sit there for a long time. That's the problem. Is there's a lot of things in this crisis we'll probably see that at least open the door for a more libertarian discussion around them. As you said, there was a general across the board. Uh, volume limit for liquid mostly in airports and now we're saying okay well no this liquid you know so so is it the question of like there shouldn't be any liquids above a certain volume is it only certain liquids like now we get like there's no direct answers to that in this conversation but now we kind of at least open that door and we can go through it and say okay well look at that i i think that uh that one result of this is that many people are looking at a small subset of regulations the way that libertarians might look at a much larger set of uh, regulations whether that will carry over to a sort of public attitude that might result in the years to come in a uh, sort of deregulating or at least a more critical examination of which regulations are useful and which are not is really hard to say. But uh, one thing that uh, that I think at least uh, libertarians and a libertarian point of view can contribute to the, the current uh, situation is to say, hey, we've got some regulations that are stopping people from doing things and we'd be a lot better off if they were able to do those things. Right. And there's also like a lot of things like labor regulations for the private sector. I mean, we're still early into this crisis as we record this. So who knows where it could go and what kinds of questions will come up. But I'm thinking of all kinds of things. I was thinking this morning about, um, you know, for instance, different types of licensing for certain professions or different types of fees people need to pay for that licensing with an economic slowdown. Is it really important that certain professions are paying licensing fees on an ongoing basis? I know uh, there's in the States, there's a lot of weird uh, cross state licensing fees. I think in another episode, we briefly touched on like hairstylists having to pay ridiculous licensing fees and then there's regulations about who can cross what state borders. As lots of economic changes happen, and hopefully when we come out of the end of the pipeline on this and people move around and people's lives will be changed, we know that. Again, I think we'll be in a situation where we look at all kinds of regulations, including labor ones, and say like either, hey, like what gives <laughs> this should change, or at least during the crisis, we think they should we, they should change temporarily. Again, opening the door for further discussion. Absolutely. On the labor uh, regulations, there was a story in the last few days that the state of Massachusetts has announced they will license anybody in Massachusetts who is licensed as a nurse, and this might also be doctors, but definitely nurses, if they were licensed in a different state, they previously were not allowed to practice without going through the full process of being relicensed right. as a nurse in Massachusetts. Now with the concern of staffing hospitals uh, for what the expected surge in patients are related to COVID-19, they're saying, well, you know what, if you were licensed in Utah, mm-hmm. we're going to say, okay, you can practice nursing in Massachusetts. Well, it brings the question up, if the license was originally for all the things that the often governments and people that are proponents of licensing say it's for, which is protection of the public, ensuring people have proper training, all that kind of stuff. It does, again, bring up the question that, okay, so now during a time of pandemic is probably where we really want people to be thinking of protecting the public, being safe and being professional, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But now we're saying, oh, no, no, during a time of pandemic, we need more nurses, so we probably need re- less regulation. So again, I think another door open. What gives with that? Is yeah. it, was it, were, the, were these licenses originally actually for that is the question. Yeah, yeah. And that, of course, you know, uh, this relates into some sort of, you know, sort of public choice theory, the concentration of interests uh, and uh, where you see regulations that are maybe brought in with the best of intentions, uh, but also can be supported or kept in place by in- interest groups. Uh, so in the case of a, a license uh, requirement that doesn't let a nurse who is trained in Utah practice in Massachusetts, I assume that's... J- uh, supported by the Massachusetts you know, nurses organization, whatever uh, form that might uh, might take. 
but probably most people don't think it would be dangerous to let a nurse from Utah practice in, in Massachusetts. It's great that they are now giving that ability during this crisis, but that should also be a thing that's considered going forward uh, in nursing and, and a great many other occupations too. And as you said earlier, uh, just a bit earlier there about whether or not this translates into more of a public attitude remains to be seen, especially depending on, I would say, A, how long this crisis lasts and, and you know, B, how people feel on, on the tail end of all this. But it, again, so on the one hand, there's a lot of people worried when it comes to economic intervention that there's no such thing as a temporary government action, right? If the government expands right now during the crisis and uh, let's say decides to put more money into the economy, the debt increase, whatever the case may be from the fiscal side, people are saying, well, that's just going to still have momentum when the crisis is over. It may not take the same form, but people will have seen, oh, we spent X, Y, and Z. It wasn't as bad. Maybe we could do it again now. So there's no such thing as temporary government action on that side, a lot of people are saying. But I'm wondering maybe there's a flip side to that that's good. Maybe there's no such thing as temporary government action when it comes to lifting labor regulations or all the other stuff we're talking about. I don't know. Maybe there's a flip side to that. Obviously, we don't want to see radical spending and stimulus packages from a libertarian perspective as as the norm, but maybe we do want to see the lifting of regulations as the norm and people saying, hey, wait a minute, maybe I should go be able to practice in Utah or whatever the case may be. Yeah, one thing I think uh, that people, uh, both the left and the right and also libertarians uh, tend to agree on is that times of crisis uh, set the stage for big change. Right. Uh, now, uh, libertarians tend to look at that and say, when there's a big crisis, often you get an increase in the size of the state in terms of regulations, in terms of uh, taxes and spending and all of that. People on the left uh, often worry that times of crisis are used to reduce the size of government. And we can look at examples of you know, where each of those things happen. Uh, so one of the few things that I think we know with certainty that's going to follow uh, COVID-19 is that there will be some big changes in political systems in countries around the world. Now, whether as libertarians, we will look at those changes and think they were generally positive or generally negative remains to be seen. My expectation will be that we will see things we will like and we will see things we don't like. Right. And it doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum. Uh, the years to come will bring changes that have been triggered uh, by this pandemic that uh, you, some of them you'll like and some of them you won't like. And, and luckily, there are some examples of, uh, you know, in the states specifically, you know, bipartisan opposition to measures that might seem like they're going too far. Like I think you and I were talking on Facebook chat earlier, I think it was yesterday, we shared a Rolling Stone article about uh, the Department of Justice, supposedly it's been reported as asked Congress to craft legislation about being able to maybe temporarily suspend constitutional rights. And I did share a photo on Facebook today about uh, there was a Republican congressperson and then AOC, they were both in the Twitter feed saying, absolutely not over my dead body, basically. So maybe there's there's a, there's also a, a bipartisan opportunity here, at least as well. So maybe there's there's a bright side to that. I, I expect that we're going to see you know, pushing in, in both directions on both sides of the political divide. And so that you'll have people from each side saying, we need more government powers. Mm -hmm. We need more government programs. We need to suspend certain rights. And I think that we'll see people on both sides of the political divide who will push back mm -hmm. against those sorts of things. Um, you know, and again, my general view as a libertarian is going to be quite watchful of efforts to roll back rights or restrict rights uh, under a crisis like this. And that's not to say that it is never going to be justified. Uh, so you know, one example of perhaps a, an appropriate justification, an appropriate use of government force is if we know that someone has a dangerous disease uh, like COVID-19 and, uh, and we know that they have the opportunity to spread it. Perhaps it is the case that government 
government is justified in in quarantining them, in stopping them from spreading that disease. Uh, perhaps the government is justified in stopping people who have that disease from coming into a jurisdiction that doesn't have that disease where, where they might spread it. So we don't have to oppose all of those government actions, but we need to sort of have a, a watchful eye to keep an eye on, on what's happening right. in terms of suspending all rights, as, as some people have called for, in terms of uh, you know mandating a, a quarantine uh, over and above, simply encouraging people to minimize social contact and practice social distancing. Right. There's going to be a big difference uh, between those things. Uh, we want to, as libertarians, we want to see the, if any government force is going to be used, we want it to be the smallest amount of government force that will determine the objectives. So, you know, um, maybe maybe we would rather see a law that said, if you have COVID-19, you are f- subject to a forcible, you know, government quarantine lasting two weeks. Mm-hmm. What we don't want to say is, uh, or probably we don't want to see, is a government that says nobody can do anything or go anywhere mm-hmm. uh, or for two weeks, because that's probably an overly broad tool. Right. And, and that's one of the things I did note that I want to talk to you about today, which was how can government response ultimately become disproportionate to the actual like threat we're facing. And I think obviously one quick example I just brought up, uh, asking for you know uh, suspension of constitutional rights is probably something a lot of at least libertarians should be saying that they, uh, well, that's probably too far. But you know uh, I'm wondering if you have any other thoughts on that. Uh, obviously, we don't want to, I'm going to make it very clear that we're obviously, Matt and I sitting here not saying, well, this is no big deal. There, there, there's, there's never going to be a situation where someone's rights uh, in, under normal times might not to be might not need to be pushed a little bit, as you were saying, under normal circumstances, we hope that the government isn't forcing people into quarantine or, or isolation. But if they're carrying a potentially deadly disease, that might be a, a different type of situation. So so is the libertarian perspective in this type of situation better geared towards seeing where exactly that line would be between proportionate and disproportionate response. Yeah, so I, I think there's going to be a lot of conversations in the in the days ahead. Perhaps worth mentioning that we're recording this on, on Sunday, March 22nd, so we're about seven days or so into uh, you know the the full implementation of, of social distancing and, and a lot of things shutting down. Um, but uh, one thing I think libertarians are going to be able to contribute to the dialogue in the coming days and the coming months and, and maybe even the coming years is to keep a watchful eye on what are the limits that uh, governments are seeking to put on on citizens and individuals. Uh, what are cases where those limits are justified in terms of keeping other people safe? And, and what are cases in which it is not justified? Uh, and perhaps it's just the simple overreaction, or perhaps it's part of a, a move to, to bring in some sort of program or, or uh, restriction that would not have been acceptable absent the, the crisis. Um, so one example that, uh, that comes to mind is uh, about uh, five days uh, before a, a state of emergency was declared in the province of Ontario, uh, the Canadian health minister, Patty Hajdu, uh, was on the radio, and she said that a, a travel ban uh, in terms of just completely shutting down the borders to international travel uh, was not a effective means of uh, combating the spread of COVID-19, and that it could even be counter uh, counterproductive and harmful. With all the considerations. Right, right. If, if it led to uh, more people sneaking across, 
people coming across in different ways because if they're coming through airports then we can have screening processes but if they're like sneaking through the woods in rural Manitoba then there's not going to be a screening session right Right. so I think think it was a Thursday evening if I remember correctly she said that uh, and then uh, within a week perhaps the following Tuesday or Wednesday Canada did shut down its borders to international travel now it's possible that uh, that that was basically based on the uh, the advice and and the, the consensus among the medical advisors who were working with the government that uh, that on Thursday they thought that uh, a travel shutdown was not going to be an effective uh, means of combating the spread of the disease. And by Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, things had changed and developed in such a way that they were wrong. They reevaluated their opinion. But I do worry that perhaps it was driven by the idea that public opinion thought that right. shutting down the border was necessary. Uh, perhaps that was not the emphasis or the uh, the agreement of the uh, the medical consideration. Um, and we should you know, be worried about the fact that politicians are going to be responding both to expert advice and political opinion. Now, right. neither of those is always going to be right, right? We can look at a decision that comes about through public uh, opinion and say that's right or wrong. We can look at a, uh, um, a decision that is uh, reached by expert consensus and we can think that is right or wrong. It's important to clarify here that expert consensus, especially among government, uh, you know, uh, cabinet ministers and things like that, is often tend, the consensus is that group of experts they're talking to. Yeah. Usually they're not taking the time to do a meta-analysis of the entire set of knowledge on the subject, right? Yep, yep, exactly. And uh, and I worry that we are seeing some political decisions that are being made uh, more on the basis of, of political uh, posturing um, uh, and, uh, and, you know, taking political considerations into a fact, uh, into consideration rather than actual public health concerns. Uh, in the case of Doug, uh, Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, uh, one day he told uh, Canadians or Ontarians that uh, that they should travel during March break and, and go on their vacation as planned and enjoy themselves. Uh, within a week, he was uh, in, imposing a emergency order that uh, prohibited even restaurants from uh, from opening. And uh, and so you've got to think, okay, well, you know, maybe he was. Uh, Giving what he thought was the best advice at one time, and uh, and then you know the the expert advice had changed within that that uh, space of a week. But it does make me worry how much of the response we're seeing from our politicians is driven by political considerations, driven by the best evidence we have in terms of uh, you know stopping the spread of the disease. Political considerations are obviously quite different in normal times as compared to a crisis as well, right? Political considerations during normal times, of course, people might panic about a certain thing, maybe the economy. In a, at a certain time, in a certain sector, in a certain province, the oil industry, whatever, you know, p- take your pick. Regular political considerations, jobs, um, something like that. But in the time of crisis, there's a lot more panic underneath these political considerations. So all the politicians obviously have in their head uh, re-election prospects, how history will look at them. Like we, we can't say that they're uh, so not vain to not consider that kind of thing. Um, th- there's tons of things going on in their head, and a lot of it's also fueled by panic as well. Yeah. The idea just someone do something because it makes the public feel better. So I think that's a huge thing for libertarians to consider is that, you know, uh, you're also combating from the libertarian perspective, the whole uh, panic sentiment, the do something sentiment. Yep. Yep. And the, a lot of the conversations that have taken place on this podcast are uh, influenced by some degree to public choice theory. Uh, Jim Buchanan, one of the, the founders, referred to public choice theory as politics without romance. And so we shouldn't have this romantic idea of the noble politician who's acting purely 
actually in in uh, the public good, what they perceive as as the public good. And uh, so we should keep that in mind that uh, when politicians are making decisions, that they are in the place they're in because they've successfully navigated a system that rewards political decision making that uh, results in a you know, can result in a very different decision that might be undertaken by another process. Now that does not mean we should never believe anything politicians say in a time like this, or right, or right. always assume that they're they're lying to us or, or that they're wrong. But we should take that in into consideration. And it, I think it's important uh, as uh, as members of the public and perhaps especially as libertarians, uh, we're going to want to keep an eye on government in the next little while, and we're going to say, okay, we realize that you're going to do some things you wouldn't normally have done because of the situation, and we may be okay with some of those actions, but we're not going to give you a blank check. We're going to think about what's being done. We're going to think critically uh, and try to use our best judgment, even though we don't have necessarily expertise, to figure out whether the measures you're proposing are justified or not. And if we're mm-hmm. concerned they're not justified, that you're, uh, you're limiting our liberties uh, and, and not getting the benefits that are being claimed by, uh, we shouldn't be afraid to speak up about that and make that part of the dialogue. Uh, and one thing I think we'll want to try and avoid is the, uh, the sort of political atmosphere that emerged, especially in the United States after 9-11, mm-hmm, where, you know, mm-hmm. you couldn't question any decision. There was one congressman, or a congresswoman, who voted against, I think, the Emergency Powers Act, and that was pretty much it. I, I, I assume Ron Paul was probably a no in there, although he might have been out of Congress at the time. I actually don't know. We're, we're going to throw that in the episode notes, but I, I, I don't think the one, I remember watching the speech on YouTube about it. It was one, actually, congresswoman who voted against it. I'm not sure if Ron, what Ron Paul was doing at the time, but but nevertheless, yeah. it certainly wasn't a, a tight a tight vote. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Exactly, and uh, and so you know, we, to a certain degree, we want a, uh, a public spiritedness, a, uh, a a common effort to defeat the spread of this uh, this pandemic. Right. Uh, but also, we want to have an atmosphere that allows for people to stand up and say, you know, I don't think that's a justified measure because of the situation that we're in, and we don't want a situation. You know, the uh, the sort of stereotype uh, in the U.S. after 9/11 became, if you said anything critical of of what the Bush government was doing. Why do you hate America? Right, and we want to avoid that sort of uh, dialogue here. Yeah, we don't. We don't want to get into you're either with us or with the disease. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I think we can safe to say that no one is with the disease in this case. Exactly, yeah. and I think that's a great place to take a break. So we'll do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Matt Bufton today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Peter Jaworski, Randy T. Simmons, and Rosa Pagliarello. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Matt Bufton today, Mr. Executive Producer to me. Uh, Matt, during the break, we were talking, uh, and uh, we looked some stuff up, actually, too, as well. Before the break, we uh, 
were saying, we, I believe there's one person who voted against emergency powers after 9-11, and we were having that discussion, but uh, you looked some stuff up there. Yeah, yeah. So I was so used to hearing all these stories of votes in Congress that were, uh, you know, 492 to one or whatever it is, uh, with Ron Paul always being the one. And uh, and given his criticisms of, uh, of U.S. foreign policy, uh, especially following 9-11, I thought he was going to be the, the one. But it turns out the one uh, uh, congressperson who voted against the authorization for use of military force in 2001 was uh, Barbara Lee, a Democrat from California, and uh, and not Ron Paul, who did vote for that legislation. Kudos to Barbara, obviously. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in retrospect, especially. Um, I want to talk about, um, jump back in here and talk about another category during, of this whole crisis here. Uh, a lot of people seem to think that uh, incentives and action, especially during a time of crisis, need to be generated by the government. Um, obviously, a libertarian in regular times would say that that's not always true, that incentives and and uh, action don't always need to be stimulated by the government. But even during t- times of crisis, we see at least some examples of uh, private institutions or uh, private funds trying to incentivize either uh, change or help for the crisis directly or, or, or the ec- economy more broadly. Uh, for instance, I think uh, the Mercatus Center at George Mason University has introduced prize funds for things like best innovation in social distancing, best investigation gave journalism on the coronavirus. Um, but it doesn't always have to be private funds. There's a lot of things that civil society can take care of here. I, I, I think this is something that libertarians should keep in mind as, as well as they're talking to everybody during this time of crisis. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that perhaps the types of people who say there are no libertarians in a pandemic are, are thinking that in a pandemic, there is only a role for government. and The government has to provide all of the solutions to the problems we face. And, uh, and I would hope that they would consider in the same way that uh, many libertarians are, are willing to say that there is certainly a role for government in, in pandemic that uh, that I hope that other people would look at the role for not the government. Uh, you mentioned the prizes put up by Mercatus Center and Emergent Ventures. Uh, they've put up a million dollars, and this was very quickly. This was over a week ago, I believe, that they, they announced this. Uh, they put up over a million dollars, or I think a million dollars, but it may be added to in prizes related to responses uh, to COVID-19. And uh, half of that. So there's a half a million dollar prize for the most sort of promising response. Um, that could be something like a vaccine or a treatment or maybe a new way to increase ventilator and ICU capacity. Um, but the other prizes are things about uh, public commentary, um, ideas, uh, communications, strategies, that sort of stuff. And it's pretty broad. What they want to do is reward people who are doing good work. They've actually announced uh, the first few prizes that are handed out. And one was actually given to a 17-year-old who started tracking the spread of COVID through his website uh, back in December uh, 2019. So he saw this coming, uh, it seems, uh, or maybe didn't see it coming, but he was prepared early on, uh, Was a uh, seemed to be a good source of information. And so the idea that Emergent Ventures and the Mercatus Center are embodying here is we have a lot of knowledge that is distributed throughout various societies. Knowledge is not all concentrated in government. And there's a big role for actors who are not the government. Um, and there's some, some other examples that have come up in uh, in recent days. I mean, first of all, we're seeing a lot of ideas and discussions about possible drug treatments. 
Uh, there are certain drugs that they think might be very effective in combating this. It's too early to, to know for sure, but there's a lot of discussion on that. Uh, and part of that is, is not just the various government health agencies, but also pharmaceutical companies and, and doctors and, and other sorts of uh, organizations and people and groups around the world looking for treatments. There's a lot going on in the testing uh, facilities, uh, people trying to come up with new ways to test, faster ways to test, ways to uh, produce more tests. Uh, one of the problems, it seems actually, with the uh, response by the U.S. government uh, to the problem uh, was they insisted on developing their own test rather than immediately starting use of a test that had been developed in China or some other country. Uh, and uh, there seems to be a general consensus that uh, widespread uh, testing, especially early testing, is one of the ways that, uh, that this, uh, the damage from the, the epidemic uh, could have been could have been limited or could yeah the damage could have been limited um, and then we're also seeing things in terms of ventilators uh, I grew up in in Windsor uh, have a lot of friends who work in uh, either the auto industry or uh, manufacturing related to the auto industry and it uh, looks like a lot of that uh, ca uh, capacity uh, is going to be allocated in the the coming weeks and months to producing ventilators and so uh, Perrin Beattie, uh, who I believe is the chair of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, uh, put out a tweet uh, earlier in the week calling for anyone with manufacturing capacity who they thought would be able to shift over into making ventilators to contact the Canadian government. And I was reading an article this morning uh, with the chair of an association of automotive manufacturers uh, who said that he was unable to even take all the phone calls that were coming into his office from people uh, in companies that were looking at making more ventilators. Uh, and then one sort of final example, uh, we're in Ottawa. There's a doctor in uh, in Perth, uh, not too far from here, uh, who was very concerned because their local hospital, I guess, only has one ventilator. Uh, he did some looking on YouTube and, uh, and found that there's a way to put multiple patients uh, on a ventilator. There are some limitations to how this can be done, um, but he, he found a way pretty quickly to make it so that one ventilator could uh, could be used for two patients. And, and uh, last I heard, uh, they thought they could do up to nine patients uh, in an emergency on a single ventilator using some of these modifications. Um, and these are contributions to the things that we need that are being made by people and individuals who are outside of the government. Uh, and these are all things that are going to help us in the fight against this disease. Yeah, and I think it's also important here, as in many other types of discussions, to stop real quick and also distinguish between, you know, what might just be viewed as narrowly the private sphere and also the market, right? Because ultimately what you're talking about are market solutions. Like, you know, a lot of people, I've seen articles about this too, have talked about, uh, you know, things like the government working very closely with the private sphere or even completely taking it over, to be honest, like a World War II situation. And then the government can direct the private enterprise and the private sphere to manufacture certain things. But really what we're talking about here is pretty much um, market-driven solutions. Uh, for instance, I've seen them um, one other example of you know market versus sort of private action as well as I've seen a lot of patent trolls have come out of the works during this process of, of, of crisis as well uh, that you know some uh, kids even in some case have, in, have invented some interesting things and you know a patent troll will, will pop out of the, the works and say like no 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 you can't do that that's our intellectual property of course some might say see well this is why the private sector doesn't work but as far as I can tell most of the classical liberals or libertarians or however they label themselves on Facebook a lot of them tend to actually be against these types of things even if it is private 
profit, for instance, off of a patent. We're, the idea is to have more of a market competition. I, obviously, we don't really want to turn this into an episode about intellectual property, but I'm using that as one example to say that there's a difference between sort of private action, but also the market, which is what you're talking about. Yep, yep. No, there, there's a, uh, a great example there. Uh, as you say, you know, libertarians are absolutely divided on intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Uh, some uh, some believe that it's a form of property and therefore it should be you know, safeguarded by the government, much like your physical property would be. Uh, some libertarians, and I would count myself in, in this camp, uh, worry that we have too many protections on intellectual property and that this stops necessary innovation. Uh, so one interesting question is going to be if there's a pharmaceutical treatment, uh, you know, not a, not a cure, but a, a drug treatment that is beneficial uh, in terms of uh, treating people who have COVID-19, what is that drug going to be? Because there's a big difference if it's a drug. And one of the possible drugs they're talking about is a malaria medication that has been around for decades. And so that uh, drug is not covered by a patent. So if it turns out that drug is effective, then pharmaceutical companies all over the world could start producing that drug en masse, and they wouldn't be having to pay royalties or, or get mm-hmm. agreements uh, from the uh, the owner of a patent to, to do that. If it turns out that a drug that has been developed more recently, say 10 years ago, uh, is a sort of magic bullet or very beneficial for people with COVID-19, that drug is going to be covered by a patent. And then we're going to see the how does that negotiation play out, right? Because you can imagine that a company that owns that patent might say, in the interest of you know, fighting this uh, global pandemic, we're going to allow anyone to make this. Uh, but maybe they're going to say, hey, we put a lot of money in developing this drug. Right. And we haven't made our money back yet. We want some of that money. Um, I'm not sure. It's not obvious you know, which is the right way to deal with that sort of situation, but it's going to be a much more complicated situation and discussion if it turns out that a drug that is still covered by intellectual property laws right. is uh, is very effective versus a drug that is not covered by those laws. And regardless of what side of the pat- um, intellectual property debate that you sit on, you, you must concede that ultimately uh, if you, that type of intellectual property regime is a barrier entry for other players to come in and actually create a quote market for a certain the, drug. The, the whole idea between those intellectual property laws is a barrier to entry, right? right? Exactly. So let's shift over to what we can, I guess, broadly state as like the cost of government response to coronavirus, specifically the, the cost to the economy. So um, I, I mentioned this before in the first half that uh, let's let's talk about Canada specifically, specifically as an example. So the federal government has jumped into action here with an economic plan that includes a lot of things directly for, for citizens. Uh, these are things like expansions to EI benefits and also uh, some criteria modification for like the eligibility for EI, uh, things like that. On the business side as well, they're doing things for the business community. Uh, they've reduced the amount, I think, of tax that you have to remit when you're doing like uh, paying your employees a, a payroll and, and things like that. They've uh, just injected a bunch of money into Business Development Canada, which is a crown corporation for those of you listening that don't know. So they can uh, loan businesses uh, more funds if they need it. Lots of things are happening. Basically, you know, it's, it's a bonanza funds are being injected into the economy in some way, shape or form. Uh, you and I were talking, obviously, outside of this recording, and you raised the the question of whether or not uh, this is a lot of ammunition being used, number one. Is it a proportionate response, first question? And number two, is it too early? Yep, yep. Well, so I think there's uh, a couple things to consider. Uh, One is that we know that the potential health impacts for COVID-19 could be massive, and they're they're already pretty significant, right? Um, But we also know that the economic impacts are going to be huge. And, uh, And so we do not want to 
not account for the economic impacts when we're deciding how to respond, right? Yeah, maybe it's the case that if uh, everybody could be delivered a one-year supply of food and literally not leave your house for a year, that uh, that we could you know, uh, really put a stop to any uh, future deaths by COVID. Um, the costs of doing that, first of all, economic costs, but also the social costs in terms of mental health and people's enjoyment that would be foregone during the year would be huge. It's probably not worth going to that extreme. So we've, we've got to try and figure out what the right balance is in terms of we're going to see reduction in economic activity. We're going to see reduction in these social activities that people derive enjoyment from. And, uh, and in some of those measures to do that will be justified, but we want to make sure that we're taking those costs costs uh, into account. Um, the other situation is that uh, because uh, so much of this economic, these limits to economic activity are taking place for public benefit to stop the spread of the, the virus, many people are calling for the government to offset the losses that are being incurred by people. Right. And this is totally understandable. Uh, but it's also a situation in which a lot of people are going to feel economic pain from this, and we shouldn't sort of pretend that the government is is a sort of external entity to all of us. Uh, you know, if we all ask the government for money, the government doesn't go to Mars to get some money and bring right. it back and give it to us, right? It has to basically tax us or borrow money, which just means future future taxation. Um, so we should keep in mind that uh, that governments just do not have a blank check to keep on uh, writing at checks and and giving money to people and 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 uh, compensating people, and even in cases where we might think it was entirely justified and uh, desirable, even that. Uh, that someone were to get some compensation from the government, they can only get it if the government is able to pay that. Right. And for the government to pay it, it has to come from everybody else. So there's there may be some tough choices uh, coming down the road ahead of us. Right. And I think it's it's also important to you know distinguish between uh, what could be looked at as let's just call it a safety net for now. And by safety net, I mean like you know preventing someone from being homeless or or dropping into like a really, really bad state of poverty versus uh, calling upon the government to help people maintain a certain type of lifestyle. Because as you said, uh, this kind of crisis isn't the only kind of crisis, a pandemic that can come up that would disrupt people's lifestyles. Like, you know, bubbles have burst in the past. People have lost their shirts on the market. Um, sometimes in just a certain sector, like a little bubble may burst. So people will have to lose jobs, retrain them. Like, so the question then becomes, you know, how do we temper that and create a proportionate response if there is indeed a role for government and also not cross that line between what is a safety net versus, again, and just, well, I quite frankly, there are some people in a position that are like, well, I have a well, you know, high paying job. I just got laid off and, uh, you know, I need to be able to be in my house here with my, you know, three car garage, et cetera, et cetera. Like, at what point do we draw the line that we don't have the answers sitting here, right? These are tough no, questions. No, no. These yeah. And it's going to be a case where people, you know, if a, a localized disaster happens or a disaster happens that affects a small segment of the economy, a certain industry. Uh, you know, we've seen this in the past with the auto industry. You know, the auto industry was bailed out. And so, uh, so you know, the, the majority of people uh, had to contribute funds that went into the auto industry. Um, but we're looking at 
you know, what might be a unique situation or certainly an unusual situation in that the economic pain is going to be so widespread that, uh, that it's not going to be a group, there's not going to be a group of Canadians that are not affected, a group of people in any country that right. are not affected by this who can just be called upon to pay for it. Right. Uh, so I expect that we're going to, we've already started to see uh, some government stimulus, some government compensation, but we're going to want to keep in mind that uh, the ability to write those checks is not unlimited. It's not infinite. And uh, and so some people are not going to get, probably no one is going to get paid as much as they would like to as a result of this. And it may be the, cha- the case that some people are not paid at all. As you were saying, when I understand things as a cl- from a classical liberal perspective and look at the long-term effects of a fiscal stimulus or things like that, and COVID will eventually pass, where does that leave us? How, how much how much debt are we willing to incur, you know, as a quote society? Like, like, what are the right decisions here? Again, as you said, like, there's no easy way to slice this stuff. Like, this is serious business. We're setting the groundwork right now for very long-term effects. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and one thing I think is worth keeping in mind is that uh, when the government, uh, various governments uh, engaged in economic stimulus in 2008, 2009 to you know, sort of save the economy, right. a lot of libertarians didn't think that was a good idea. But uh, but having done that, uh, I think governments would have been well-behaved to try to get back on to, you know, to balance budgets to start stocking up surpluses. So if their intent was to have funds to uh, you know, compensate losers to, um, I mean, economic losers there, <laughs> uh, uh, to compensate people uh, for losses and uh, to uh, to stimulate the economy, then, uh, then they should have been saving up. Uh, because I believe since uh, 2008, 2009, when you know, the Canadian federal government went into a massive deficit, I think there was one year where the budget was essentially balanced. Yeah. Every other year it's been negative and there are no years of surplus. So the government's capacity to spend money now is going to be much less than what what it might otherwise be if governments had been saving during the economic good time. Right. And I think you and I were also joking uh, when we were talking outside of this before. I, I think I was I was saying that classical Keynesianist principles would actually be preferable to whatever the heck's been going on for the past 10 years. That is to say, I was joking to say, like, it would have been nice if people were actually saving in the good times and now there's a bad time so they could spend. But I think you and I were joking that, but we have been spending a lot in the good times and now we're spending a lot more in the bad times. And that is not the way things should, even if you like uh, stimulus spending, this is not the way it should really be. Yeah. Well, you, you start to wonder, right, is there any occasion that doesn't call call for uh, for more spending and, and government deficit? Right. right? So although I'm, uh, I'm a bit cynical on the idea that government should save uh, and then stimulate the economy, uh, it's at least preferable to government never saving and then also still stimulating the economy. Exactly, exactly. So I want to shift gears a little bit again. I want to discuss the idea, and, and we were talking, you're saying this is bugging you, and, 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 I, and I totally have seen it before as well online, that pe- people are sort of conflating this idea with doing nothing and what meaningful government response is. That is to say, in other words, that a lot of people l- look at others who are saying things like, well, maybe this is a little too much, or maybe we shouldn't be doing X, Y, and Z. Uh, you know, they're looking at them and saying, well, we shouldn't do nothing. And I think this is this is a big problem right now. Yep. We're, we're in a time of crisis. And as you were saying before, it, number one, it is a crisis. Number two, tough decisions will have to be made. Number three, it's not that government should sit around and do nothing. And number four, you and I in discussing here, we, we, we totally understand the incentives and, and we can sympathize with people saying something's got to be done. But having said that, uh, that should not, I don't think, push uh, discussion over 
what's reasonable to do in this time of crisis off the table and have people hurling insults and, and anger at each other saying, well, we can't do nothing. It's like, that's not really helping the discussion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I can imagine that uh, that a lot of our listeners who are libertarians are perhaps uh, saying something, uh, you know, expressing some skepticism about some of the things that their governments uh, might be doing and, uh, and some of their friends uh, who don't you know, agree with their political views, uh, saying something, you know, well, we've, we've got to do something. We can't do nothing. If we do nothing, all of these people will die. And, you know, that would be true. Um, but nobody is advocating for doing nothing. And mm-hmm. it, it's far too late to do nothing if that, if that was anyone's intent, which I which I don't think it is. Um, so one thing is to, is to look at just the fact that uh, libertarians don't want to do nothing, uh, but we want to see what can be done by the private sector, by individual actors, uh, by civil society. We want to see that be done uh, because we believe that's an effective way of accomplishing things. Uh, and also, we should keep in mind the the things that people would do uh, if we didn't have, you know, right now, a lot of places have government orders um, telling people, you know, either not to leave or only to leave under a, circum- a certain set of circumstances, not to do certain gatherings and all that. And those may be justified, uh, but we shouldn't compare those to some sort of world in which we all live like we did a month ago, right? Right. If uh, the province of Ontario, the city of Ottawa, uh, the federal government were to lift the restrictions that Ottawa is is currently under, I don't think we'd see you know, people going to an NHL hockey game. Well, you had the NHL. Uh, I don't believe the federal government ever told them they had to shut down, right? Good example, yeah. They made that decision. You know, it's not a good idea to put 16,000 people shoulder to shoulder in one uh, building right now. If you want to laugh, you can check out YouTube World Wrestling Entertainment uh, doing doing wrestling matches, people in the ring together, still calling each other out with microphones, nobody in the audience. So it's kind of like a performance art sort of vibe now. But uh, So it's it's, uh, these large companies, large organizations, real sports leagues have, have basically said, yeah, no thanks. We're not going to take that liability. Yeah, yeah. And we're, and we're starting to see the point now where politicians in Canada and the U.S. and other countries, I'm sure, are are starting to you know make some fairly serious threats uh, about punishing people uh, who don't follow social distancing guidelines. Uh, and I think when we read about that, one thing we want to keep in mind is, okay, what level of social social distancing and avoiding crowds and self-isolation will we get without the threat of government force? Because it's not going to be zero, right? There's going to be, I think, a pretty high level, but certainly some level uh, that that's going to be practiced. Right. And then what is the additional amount that we get when we use government force to make people do that? And then we decide whether that's worth it or not. Uh, and one thing to sort of keep in mind is, you know, what would we do to people who don't follow these government rules? Um, probably no one thinks that we want the police to like shoot someone because they uh, they go to a restaurant uh, or they they you know get within you know, six feet of someone else. So you know, I think everyone would say, well, that's off the table. We don't want that. Uh, we probably don't want them arrested and put into jail. Because there's a lot of justifiable concerns that if this you know, virus gets into a jail, that's going to be a huge problem. Um, so maybe we're just fining people. And is that going to be effective? Uh, are we worried about fining people uh, who may not have the money because we're in an economic downturn? Well, there's uh, another stimulus we can bring out for that. Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> we, we need some sort of fund to cover the fines of people. So moving on, Matt, you and I, we're not medical experts. We're not professional economists. But I thought, so we, you know, we can't get too specific, but I thought you know, it'd be good to maybe do a little 
if this, then that sort of scenario thing at the end of the episode, not to put sure. you on the spot and get people to quote you and say, ah, Matt Bufton was wrong or <laughs> Alex was wrong, but I think it, it still be kind of, kind of informative. Obviously yeah. we don't want to get too specific, but even before recording today, you and I were sort of talking back and forth and we were saying, well, you know, X, Y, and Z isn't sustainable, or if this happens, then that'll happen. So maybe we can get into that a bit. So uh, let, let's start with um, just like social policy. So lockdowns, you, you were saying that you do not think uh, that uh, even if, the virus does continue to spread and it, 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 there's no way we're going to be practically all sitting in lockdown for the next six months. You don't think people are going to take that. You're saying if that does happen, then we're definitely still not going to be in lockdown. At some point, something's got to give. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's that's probably unlikely. I should say that uh, that I was supposed to take grade, te- grade 10 biology. Uh, I dropped it at the last minute to take a drama class. Uh, so I have absolutely no biological, epidemiological, or medical qualifications uh, of any sort. Um, but just to, to comment on sort of, uh, you know, the impact on society, and, and government that I see this sort of stuff happening. Um, it's hard for me to imagine a situation in which uh, we stay in a state of strict lockdown for months on end. Uh, and uh, and one thing I think that we need to do is think about not only how hard that would be, how bad that would be for the economy and the cost of doing that. And the cost is not just money, right? Cost is is people's plans, the things that people want to do with their lives, their dreams, their aspirations. You know, there's an ec- that's what economic cost really comes down to. Um, but also the fact that uh, that people's happiness and enjoyment of, of life. Um, and so to you know have everybody not go outside for six months uh, would make, I think, almost everybody pretty unhappy and some people extremely unhappy. Um, so I just don't see a situation in which that is going to be a viable alternative. Uh, but we do want to take the virus seriously and mm-hmm. think about what we can do to limit the spread. So what I hope that governments and public health officials are working on, in addition to uh, obviously the medical efforts and efforts to increase our capacity in terms of ventilators and, and ICU beds, but I hope they're looking at what are the measures that will allow us to resume some semblance of normal life right. where people can still do the things that are important to them and bring meaning to their life while also trying to do as much as we can to limit the spread of the virus. Right. And I was saying to you before we were recording today too, as we were getting set up that unfortunately it, it just seems to be a fact of life. And again, it's, it's this isn't something that I would say, I say lightly, it's very unfortunate, but the, the optimal quantity of new people infected every day cannot be zero in the long run. Otherwise, like you said, we would just have to be on permanent lockdown for like months on end to make sure the virus is stamped out. When you balance all the factors, social policy, civil liberties is one thing, right? We, we've talked about that. But then, like you said, mental health, people's happiness, and and the state getting in the way of people living their life, that's one thing. And then all the economic considerations, unfortunately, we probably will see a world where, where we will have to accept and be okay with on net a certain number of new cases of COVID today. Hopefully it's always decreasing and hopefully even, you know, there's a vaccine, uh, you know, created at some point soon. But I, th- I think that's a world that we need to head toward if we see some semblance of normalcy return. Yeah, yeah, no, a, a world in which we all uh, self-isolate, and perhaps that would even mean like you know isolating away from our families. I don't really know the the measures that it would take to never see any more new cases of COVID uh, would be a case of the cure being worse than the disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we certainly do want to take the disease seriously, and so we want to be looking at what we can do to make the spread of it manageable. Uh, we've heard a lot of talk of flattening the curve, right. um, but uh, but that. Talk 
talk has been lacking in specifics. Uh, so I hope, and this, of course, this is not anything that very many people expected. Um, so it's understandable that uh, that anybody talking about this, either on a government side or a medical side or whatever it may be, is you know still going to be figuring out how this is going to look. Um, but I think that we need to have conversations uh, about how we manage the load uh, of patients, how we make sure that we uh, bring the infection rate as low as it can be uh, and the death rate as low as it can be while taking into consideration other factors. And we don't right, want right. human society to sort of shut down for a year. Uh, and even if anyone does want that, that's not going to work. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, governments are getting to the point now where they're, they're starting to talk about trying to uh, impose uh, quarantines and restrictions and things uh, by law, that's only going to work if almost everybody agrees that those measures are justified and a small minority want to want to break those laws. Right. But if it's the case that you know half of our, our society thinks these laws are going too far and they're not justified, those are going to be unenforceable because you're not going to shoot people who you know, break those laws. You're probably not going to put them in jail uh, and you're not even going to be able to really you know, identify or find them or anything like that. That if they're in sufficient numbers. Um, so I think that we're probably moving towards a situation, I certainly hope we're moving towards a situation in which uh, serious discussions about the measures that are most effective uh, that will help us in terms of both reducing the infection rate and increasing our ability to treat people who catch it and bring down the mortality rate, you know, much, much, much lower than what we've seen in some places and to whatever the lowest sort of reasonable level could be. Right. Yeah. And, and, and again, like, as you said, this is a crisis. We have to take it seriously. And a lot of the rhetoric right now is is charged around like reducing these numbers and nobody wants to see this around. But I've, I've heard economists uh, use, you know, the discussion, for instance, like the optimal quantity of crime actually isn't zero, right? Because if you think about that, we could put a camera in everybody's house. We could put a tracer and everybody see exactly what they're doing at any given time, put a policeman on everyone, follow them around. So I guess that that's kind of a good way to think about it in parallel, right? Is that we can't get to a point where we have so many measures and so much social isolation that everything else shuts down just, just for the sake of zero spread because then that we're not balancing other factors. Yeah. Now, one of the lessons that everybody should take from economics, uh, whether you studied anything formally or any economics formally or not, is that uh, that everything is about trade-offs. Right. And so when we're uh, deciding uh, what we want to do, what we're going to do to limit the spread of this virus, uh, we need to be looking at the trade-offs. And deciding, okay, uh, if we don't go to hockey games for a year, uh, is that worth it? Well, that seems like the answer is probably yes, right? Yeah, kind of return to normal, and you can picture a world where there's no NFL or no NHL for a little while. Yeah, fine. Yeah, you know. but uh, but like, what if you never have dinner with your parents for the people who don't live with their parents? What if you don't have dinner with your parents for a year? That's a much bigger sacrifice mm -hmm. than not going to a hockey game for a year. Um, and your parents are probably not going to be very happy with the situation uh, either. So it's going to you know, require some some thinking about uh, what measures are appropriate, what measures are not appropriate, um, and, and what things can we do that uh, that are worthwhile uh, in terms of limiting the spread, and mm -hmm. what are the things that uh, that we don't want to have to give up in order to try and limit the spread. Ultimately, there, there will have to be a balance between allowing some form of individual choice and allowing uh, some form of, of government control or barrier to, to prevent the spread of this, right? I mean, like, of course, as we were saying before, uh, you and I probably, we, we both don't think you just have a right to go around spreading a disease to everybody so the government can prevent that to some degree. We've already talked about that. But, you know, as, as far as personal choice is concerned, I'm sure everyone knows sort of that older person in their life that'll say something, you know, you know, 
what? Damn it. I don't care if I die. I'm just going to go do this. Yep. I'm done with yep. this. Right. And the fact is, again, assuming that they're not spreading it to 18 people that day, like, you know, we have to slowly open things back up and allow for these personal choices. It sounds terrible to some, but it is true that at some point within a reasonable framework, people need to be able to assume their own risks and live their lives. Yeah. And, and one thing I think that we uh, is worthwhile mentioning too is uh, what Friedrich Hayek uh, talked about is lighter forms of coercion, right? So we talk about individual choice, deciding what it is that you want to do. And then we talk about the government force in terms of, you know, we're going to punish you if you do these things. But there's a realm in between, right? Uh, and we're seeing a lot of this on, on social media, people telling their friends, I don't think you should be going to a bar. Uh, most of the bars, I think, are closed now. But I don't think you should be you know, going to the supermarket you know, every day. You should only go once a week and that sort of stuff. Uh, and that sort of uh, social pressure is a way of encouraging people to change their behaviors in a way that we think is better towards meeting the objective, uh, namely you know, spread, uh, slowing the spread of the, the virus without resorting to, to force. And so we can do these things to agree collectively without using the force of government to impose them. Right. I mean, we're, we're truly all responsible to some degree here. Yeah. We're, we're not all responsible to just vote for something or ask the government to do something. We're all responsible in, in many ways that expand beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, right now there there is no law that says that we have to be six feet apart, but we are. Right. And that's partially There's due no to- There's no law that says Sabini wear gloves no, right now. No, no, no. But, uh, but you know, we're, we're partially doing this for, for uh, you know, personal choice, uh, but also perhaps in response to pressure uh, from our right. friends or family who might say, well, okay, yeah. If you're going to go see someone in person, you should uh, make sure you wash your hands when you walk in the building. You should not shake hands like you normally would. You should stay further away than you normally should. And these are all measures that we can take voluntarily uh, to try and limit the spread. Right. And as you said, I think people uh, can take comfort in the fact that a lot of things weren't canceled uh, by government order, right? Like uh, even in my business, right? Lots of trade shows, a lot of businesses, a lot of work from home policies were, were enacted based on social pressure ultimately. Yeah, so absolutely. I think we can look at that. Matt, we've talked about a lot. Let's bring it full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the questions, if we can. As you know, in each episode, we want to make sure the guest has the final word. So what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether there are libertarians in a pandemic? Well, the first uh, takeaway would be, yes, there are libertarians in a pandemic. And, uh, and the second takeaway would be, uh, you know, if you are a libertarian, uh, try to think carefully uh, about uh, what you think are the appropriate things for government to do in this sort of situation. And what are the things that we do not want government to do? And if you're not a libertarian, think what is it about the libertarian view, maybe views on regulations, uh, on intellectual property, on uh, the enforcement of rules versus just using social norms, think about what a libertarian approach might look like, might be able to contribute to how you think about the crisis as we try to figure out what the balance is going to be going forward between meeting the societal objective of limiting the spread of COVID-19 while also wanting to value individual liberty. Awesome. I, th I think we'll leave it there. Uh, Matt, thanks very much for joining us today on The Curious Task. It was a pleasure. Everyone, stay healthy out there. Uh, you know, as we were saying before, we have responsibility, each of us. A little bit different on the outro if you've been listening to all the episodes so far. We pretty much end the same way all the time. Uh, executive decision was made today, Matt. You thought that it'd be a good idea if uh, Lindy Voppenford could actually play us out today. Yeah, yeah. Lindy is a longtime friend of the Institute for Liberal Studies. Uh, he's a very talented uh, singer-songwriter, uh, now living in Hamilton, Ontario. And uh, Lindy is uh, is very good at writing songs uh, based on certain stories or, or certain experiences. Uh, so if you haven't heard his stuff, uh, check it out. 
and some of the stories that he tells are great. And uh, and it only took him a few days uh, to put together a song uh, about the lockdown that we're all sharing. So I'd like to you know take us out on a on a hopefully happy uh, and uplifting note and uh, and share this song that uh, that Lindy has written uh, about locked lockdown for uh, COVID nineteen. Great, Lindy's going to take us out. Everyone, thanks for listening today. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Try to understand.